the baseball trip of a lifetime while raising awareness of the needs of children in the foster system through our partnership with Children's Hope Alliance. This is Ron Clements, and joining me today on the Home Run on Wheels podcast is sports writer and best-selling author Jeff Perlman. Hello, Jeff. How come you don't throw in sports writer, author, and either diehard Hall & Oates fan or the world's sexiest man? <laughs> nice. Why are you laughing? Uh, you, you have a pretty extensive sports journalism career, including some time covering baseball for Sports Illustrated. We'll talk about that later. And you've written what? Is it now eight books? Yep. Eight. And the latest book is called Football for a Buck, which is about the USFL. And, dude, it's awesome. I mean, I, oh, I, thank you. <laughs> I don't read much, and I, I, I tweeted this out. Uh, like, I pretty much only read on the toilet. Um, so it'll take <laughs> me, like, months or even a year to, to finish a book. But I did not want to put down football for a buck. I finished it in a week. Maybe was it a week where you had a lot of stomach problems? Because that would be good timing. <laughs> no, I actually would like you know like read on the couch and stuff. You know, I I would not Whoa. turn on the TV. Yeah, I know, crazy. Was it weird? Did you actually find yourself needing to go to the bathroom on the couch because of the impulse of the book pooping <laughs> association? No, not at all. <laughs> That's amazing. That worked out well then. <laughs> Uh, I, I know Football for a Buck was a passion project of yours. Uh, how did it all come about? Uh, I mean, I've been wanting to write this book forever and ever, and I could never get a book deal. And four years ago, um, I started pitching a Brett Favre book, and I had a bunch of bidders on it. And one of the bidders was Houghton Mifflin, and I really liked them. And I said to the editor, I said, I would take less money to do a Favre book if you gave me some money to do a USFL book, because I kept hearing nobody wants a USFL book. And um, the editor there, Susan Canavan, was nice enough to pay me less to do Favre and almost nothing to do the USFL, but she gave me a chance. That's all I wanted was a chance to do it and have it published. So um, I did the Favre book first. That was in my contract. I wanted to do the USFL book first, but they were like, no, you're doing the Favre. Favre sold really well. And then I did uh, the USFL. And, and you know, it's, um, it was a labor of love, and it's the first time I've written a book that I really considered an underdog that people didn't want. And it just made the New York Times list, which – I'm not saying that actually to brag. It's not even who cares for the average person. But like, considering like nobody wanted me to write this book, it meant a great deal. Well, congratulations on that. Thank, uh, you. Thank you. And you interviewed what, like 400 people for this book? Yeah, about that, 430-ish. There's so much in this book. It's like, what, 350 pages or something like that. And what I want to know yeah. is, of everything you have in there, what is the favorite anecdote or story that did not make the cut to be in the final edition of Football for a Buck? Yeah, I don't have a sexy answer. I've been asked this a lot, and I wish I, I should have kept something out, but I really, I filled this thing up. Like, I was not, this book was all about the stories. You know, it was all about the stories. It wasn't just about a guy's path. Or, it was about a crazy league that went three years. So I'm sure there's some things I left out that I'm just not thinking of, or maybe I accidentally forgot when I was writing it. But generally speaking, what you see in the book, I mean, that's my best grade A material. So I there's nothing, I don't have a great answer for you, I regret to say. Okay. Well, and you yeah. mentioned the stories, and there are a lot of them in there, and every good story needs a villain. And while the USFL was kind of its own worst enemy in its three-year existence, the league definitely yeah. had a villain, didn't it? Are you referring to uh, Russell Walker and Doug Flutie? 
It is Doug Flutie related, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. It, it would be the man we now call president. And uh, scary. He, uh, scary. And if you, the funny thing is, I keep saying this to people. If you, if you were in my shoes, and you spent all this time sort of writing about the USFL, um, you would never think, oh, this guy should be president. I really mean that. Even people who think now he's doing a great job, you can't get away from the USFL and see how he ruined the league for his own personal gains and think, oh, this guy's judgment. This is a selfless man. He really should be president. And that I actually found very interesting, especially when you're promoting a book and people are saying, oh, you're just some liberal loser who blah, blah, blah. No, I'm telling you, you could take Sean Hannity, give him a year to research the USFL, and if he did it accurately and he was honest, you come away and you say, yeah, this guy does not have the judgment or temperament to be president. He just, the league was ruined because he wanted an NFL team and he did everything he could to undermine the USFL and get himself a team in the NFL. And so whether you love Trump or not, there's no escaping the truth about his USFL legacy, which is as a poisonous, kind of ruinous, snake-like figure. And that's why he hates the NFL today is because he was not able to get that NFL team, right? I mean, it's a little bit of a guess, but I, I, I think it has to have something to do with it. I mean, he, he tried buying the Baltimore Colts and failed. He tried getting Pete Rozelle to give him a team and failed. He tried suing the NFL and failed. Tried buying the Buffalo Bills and failed. Tried buying the New England Patriots and failed. So when I see this grudge or this anger toward the NFL, it's just the club that never wanted him. It was a club he couldn't get into. You know, they never accepted him. They never embraced him. They saw him as a fraud. The commissioner of the NFL back then, Pete, the late Pete Rozelle, saw him as a fraud and a con man, and they didn't want him. And I, I think there's a lot of resentment there because Trump is not a guy who takes that sort of thing well. Now, did you reach out to the White House or, or Trump? I guess I did. I, and and uh, was I guess he was stonewalled there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was while he it was, was while running. He was running. My odds were never great. You know, he sat down for – Mike Toland did a 30 for 30 on the U.S. about years ago, and Trump sat down for that and came off really badly. And uh, I kind of knew the odds of him agreeing to sit down for a book, especially during the presidential campaign, especially talking about a topic that does not really perform well in him. The odds were not great. Now, the timing of this, was it just coincidence that the book, that, that, that you were writing this book while Trump was running for president? 100%. Okay. It's actually the weirdest. I wouldn't even believe me. If I heard some writer say that, I wouldn't believe him. I'd be like, yeah, okay. But the truth of the matter is, again, I pitched it years and years ago, finally got the deal four years ago, Four years ago, Donald Trump wasn't even on the radar as a possible president. And it just so happened I had to finish the Favre book before I could start this. And when I started this, he was running for president. Okay. Uh, yeah, weird. You had a special chapter in the book reserved for Greg Fields and then another section kind of detailing how you were able to find him. I know you mm-hmm. enjoyed that interview, but, but but who else was a tough get or a surprise interview for the book? That's a good question. There were... Um, you know, well, Steve Young was probably one of my favorites, uh, and he was not easy to get at first. I had to kind of go through a lot of people and this guy and that guy and try to arrange it, and he's a busy guy, and high profile. And he was great because he has this love for the USFL that's very real and very strong. He's obviously better known for his time in the NFL as a 49er, and he's a Hall of Famer. But I think he views the USFL as the most pure fun he ever had. In the way, I would say, for guys like Steve Young, the USFL is like, it's like a flight to Hawaii for vacation but the flight is horribly turbulent and you're flying through lightning. Um, that's what the USFL was like. Like, it was great. He has great memories. Some of the football was great. He learned a ton. He also was on a team that couldn't afford to pay the bus driver. And the bus driver stopped uh, on the, uh, when they were driving to a home game and refused to move another inch unless uh, he got paid his 600 bucks. You know, it was that sort of thing. So he had a lot of love for it. And, you know, there are a lot of guys like, 
like Carl Peterson, the GM of the Stars, which was great. And he wasn't easy to get at first, but he was so good. And Jerry Argovitz, the owner of the Houston Gamblers, like I took drives to people. I tried to track people down. I did. Um, it turns out the quarterback of the Jacksonville Bulls was a guy named Ed Luther, um, who had been Dan Fouts' backup with the Chargers. And it turns out he only lived like two miles away from us. And I didn't have a phone oh, wow. number. So, so I drove there with my son just to find Ed Luther. And um, it took us a while actually to get him. And then, you know, that was great. I love the tracking of people. It's one of my favorite parts of this whole thing. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, your son Emmett. He went with you to find Greg Fields up in the Bay Area, or San Fran- Sacramento, I think, right? Well, we started in So Greg Fields was this defensive lineman who punched his coach and then threatened to kill him <laughs> and actually uh, called in death threats. That's such a great then part of the book. signed by another team. Yeah, that was crazy. That was at the LA Express. And then he went to San Antonio, and he stopped getting paid by the team because the owner kind of ran out of money, and he followed him home with a baseball bat and threatened, threatened him if he didn't get paid. So I knew I had to talk to Greg Fields, but I didn't know how to find him. And I ended up getting two addresses. I didn't even know if they'd be right. They were in San Francisco, and we live in Southern California. So I told my son Emmett, who was nine at the time, I was like, you want to go on a road trip to find this guy, Greg Fields? He's like, great. We drove, <laughs> and we'll, we spent the day walking around San Francisco, just walking to the address, and it turns out to be in a ridge. I didn't realize, bad area of San Francisco, and we're walking, you know, under bridges that smell like piss, and, you know, through fields of shattered beer glass bottles, and we finally get to one house, and it's, it's empty. There's a lockbox on it, so that was no good. But then I left him home and went later that night to the project, and I found his, his sister, who was very nice, and she passed my phone number on to him. And the next day, it's me, my son Emmett, and Greg Field sitting in a food court in Sacramento eating Cold Stone Creamery. And that was a... Uh, which you paid I for. I mean, that was thrilling. Yes, which I did for. <laughs> that, was, that was absolutely thrilling. Always pay. Always pay. I bought him his ice cream. And then I interviewed him. I think it was cherry vanilla. And he was spinning it all over me. Like, not on purpose. <laughs> he just spat on me. And I was so happy to be being lathered in Greg Field's spittle because this was a guy I really wanted to find. Now, other than Greg Fields and uh, Ed Luther, did uh, Emmett go on other interview quests with you? No, but he. Both of my kids were really into it all. Like they really. First of all, um, there's this business called Five Hundred Three Sports that sponsors my podcast, and they make USFL and Throwback gear. So they were sending us, and they don't give me any money for sponsoring, but they send us gear. So like, my kids were the only kids in America, probably, <laughs> to own their own like Oakland Invader sweatshirts and Doug Williams Oklahoma Outlaw jerseys. So they were really into it. And they kind of enjoyed it. Um, now, by now, you know, you've been promoting a book for a month or so. They just want me to shut up and stop talking about it. But it was really, it was delightful. They're also at the right age. My daughter's 15. My son's almost 12, where they're much more involved when, when they were younger. And it was just daddy going off to work. That's cool. And uh, I, I know you take Emmett to a lot of baseball games, too. Uh, I, I, you post yeah. pictures of Angels and Dodgers games because you live in the L.A. area. We enjoy our visits to both Dodger Stadium and Angel Stadium. Like Angel Stadium better, I think. But uh, um, you like Angel Stadium better than Dodger Stadium? It's just so much easier to get to. Yeah, but Dodgers, oh, man, I think Angel Stadium. Why we love going in because it's close. It's kind of a charmless relic of boring stadiums of the seventies. <laughs> I never put the fountain in, but I'm not a huge fan of that stadium. The food choices are terrible. See, we had the nachos out out there beyond uh, center field, and they uh, were like really, really good. Helmet? Uh, no, we did not get him in the helmet because we had no use for yeah. an angel helmet. But uh, yeah, that's funny. But one thing we're proud of though is that we were able to get kids out to games, foster kids out to games in Miami, Detroit, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Denver, and St. Louis. And for most of those kids, that was their first major league baseball game. Uh, do you remember that's how? Yep. Yeah, thank you. Do you remember how old Emmett was the first time you took him to a major league baseball game and what his reaction was? 
Uh, yeah, he was um, maybe four. We went to a Mets game. This is when we were living in New York. So like the city field. And his reaction was a reaction of many kids that age, which is, how, are we leaving yet? Five minutes, you know, <laughs> can we go yet? What's the food? Oh, that's good. Me trying to explain it to him and him kind of, you know, my daughter actually, same thing. Eh, you know, uh, I mean, one of my great, one of my great moments are when we first went to California, I took my daughter Casey and her two friends, uh, Sky and Yasmin, to an Angels game. And we had just moved to California and these two girls, They'd also but just moved to California, so she made friends with these transplants. And we went to an Angels game, and there was like beer stein night at an Angels game or beer mug night. So we all, I got these girls who were like 10 years old walking around with these big beer mugs, and you know, and, and, and it was just kind of a magical introduction to Southern California, you know. Nice. So that was cool. Mm-hmm. Now, as on the professional side, you actually covered baseball for five years for, for Sports Illustrated. What was your favorite part of that beat? Oh, man. I mean, I was, uh, I was in my mid 20s. I was traveling all over the country. I, um, you know, like I was a kid who grew up reading Sports Illustrated, diehard, uh, reading about baseball, diehard. And now you're thrown into it and you're actually doing this thing. Uh, and it was a thing, you know, when I was a kid, I told my mom I was going to write for Sports Illustrated. And she used to say, you have to be realistic. You know, what about <laughs> being a lawyer or a doctor? And it wasn't she was being a bad mom. She was a great mom. But it just seemed like such a far off kind of world, like writing for a magazine and traveling the country and, and all of a sudden, there I was. And, uh, you know, it was just, I mean, what I, I could, I remember being on the, uh, it was 98, and I was covering the Padres, when the Padres made the World Series against the Yankees. And I just remember being at what was Qualcomm at the time. And that city was so ready for the Padres to do something. And it was just such an interesting collection of guys. And you'd stand around the interview, or excuse me, you'd stand around Tony Gwynn when he was in the dugout. And he'd be telling stories about baseball and about hitting and guys he'd met. And he was, it was mesmerizing. I still can't believe, of all the people I've covered and come across, I can't believe Tony Gwynn being dead doesn't really make sense to me because his voice oh, in my head is so vivid. And that sort of, it's weird. He was from California, but he had like an Arkansas accent to the way he talked. And he'd always have a big piece of chew in his mouth, which obviously ends up being very bad for him. And um, he was just a fascinating guy. And he was like, not, I wouldn't say morbidly obese, but really heavy, and he could still get around on anybody. Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, anybody. This is a fascinating. That guy was a fat. I could listen to Tony Gwynn talk all day. Oh, yeah, he was great. We actually, uh, or I, I interviewed somebody, a, a minor league player for the Windy City Thunderbolts in the Frontier League who played for him at San Diego State. Um, yeah. And, and was just talked about how much he learned from Tony Gwynn about baseball and about hitting and that was kind of one of the big highlights for me was when we visited Petco Park was seeing how prevalent Tony Gwynn is all over that stadium and, and, and the giant statue of him out in the uh, park in the park. Yeah, I would actually say, I think you can make the argument, take every team's biggest player of all time. You know, like uh, Yankees or Babe Ruth, and maybe the Red Sox or Ted Williams, and even more local guys, I don't know, the Diamondbacks, maybe Luis Gonzalez or anything. I don't think any player is more... It is the equivalent of the Chicago Bears with Walter Payton, Tony Gwynn, and the San Diego Padres. You know, a lot of kids probably now didn't see him play. People don't remember him or didn't grow grew up when he was. Like, you go to a game in San Diego, there's a ton of Tony Gwynn T-shirts, hats, whatever, you know, like you said, statue. He's just all over that organization. Yeah, he really is. And, 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 you know, like I I think a lot of Cardinals fans would would argue Stan Musial, but – 
I think with with the Cardinals, it's more generational. There are guys now who would identify yeah. the Cardinals with Albert Pujols or Yadier Molina, or in the sixties, Smith. Or, yeah, right. yeah, in the eighties, Ozzie Smith, or or or, or uh, in the sixties, Bob Gibson. But yeah, Tony Gwynn is Mister Padre without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's cool. I really love that actually. I mean, the other thing is, is he was just really agreeable. You know, like he was talkative and open and fun and interesting, and so he. Uh, and he came along at a time when baseball, as far as media-wise, was really sort of upping its game and exposing, having these guys sort of out there. And he was a spokesperson, not just for the Padres or the NL, but for the entire sport. So he was great. I mean, great. Like, great, great. <laughs> uh, you're, uh, you're a native New Yorker, though, right? Mets fan, I think, right? I am. Uh, when one of you... Yeah, I grew up... Well, I grew up a... Uh, go ahead. No, no. What were you going to say? You... Well, I grew up a Mets fan, but I also grew up... I grew up rooting for two teams, the Mets. And I grew up my uh, my... My favorite player as a kid was Ken Griffey Sr., interestingly. And um, my, my neighbor up the street was a guy named Dave Fleming, who ended up pitching for the Seattle Mariners. And this was at the same time that Ken Griffey Jr. was on the Mariners. For, what, for a long time, there, I was a diehard Seattle Mariners fan. Anyway. Ah. One of your first books, it was your first book, I believe, was The Bad Guys Won, which chronicled uh-huh. the, the 86 Mets who won the World Series. That was a great team with Doc and Daryl Hernandez and Mookie. Uh, what led to that book? Uh, actually, I was, just, so I was a baseball writer at SI. And there was an agent, a literary agent named Susan Reed who called me and was like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I really hadn't that much. But a friend of mine named John Wertheim at the magazine had just written his first, and I, would, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I could. And she said, what about a book about the 86 Mets? And so I, I, people always think I thought of that book, and I did not come up with the idea, but it was a perfect idea for me. It was a perfect match, I think, of a writer who was covering baseball and had access to a lot of the players. Like a lot of those guys from 86 were still working as coaches and spring training instructors. And I was going to spring training every year, and I was based in New York also. It was a really good match of a first book idea, an agent, and, uh, and a topic. And that, I think that book is still my bestseller. It definitely, when I go, when you talk to Met fans, if you talk to enough Met fans, um, I've never had another book like this where it's almost like, almost became a little bit of a, uh, of a cult-like thing, the bad guys won, just where Met fans seem to know that book. I don't say that like cockily. I don't mean it that way. I mean, whenever I run to the Met fans, oh, you wrote the bad guy's letter. Oh, yeah, my brother loves that book, or blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, it's, I don't have that with the other books I've written. It definitely. Yeah. We, our first encounter with Mets fans was actually during spring training, and uh, we, we were at a game where the seven-line army had, had made the trek down to Port St. Lucie. And, man, that's a fun, crazy group. Well, there's used to losing in this <laughs> as anything. So, Chase Stadium was actually a much more perfectly fitting uh, stadium for Mets fans because it was – First of all, it was grimy and it was old, and but it was also like resilient. And I always thought that was Met fans. Met fans were Shea Stadium, gritty and dumpy. I grew up a Met fan, um, but the Mets are the same way, and they bounce back and they hang around and they're imperfect and they stick with it. You know, like like that's Met fans. I don't know, and and yet they uh, they kind of always bounce back. So I always really liked Shea Stadium. I always thought it worked really well. You've written books on Walter Payton, appropriately titled Sweetness. You mentioned the Brett Favre book earlier, which is called Gunslinger. You've written a biography on Barry Bonds. Outside of Football for a Buck, which, like I said, I know was a, a love project for you, but which book are you most proud? Probably Sweetness. I mean, that book really sort of meant a lot to me, and um, it was a, the hardest dig I've ever had on a book. I mean, I, I interviewed about 700 people, and wow. I just was... He was a fascinating guy, really fascinating guy with a lot of sort of conflicts. And he was, you know, 
loving but also betraying and he was healthy but he was also sick and he was he was just really a fascinating guy like a really really fascinating complicated guy um i wrote a book about roger clemens and that was the exact opposite actually he was not complicated he was not fascinating he was kind of um he was kind of disappointing in a way yeah i don't know i i'd say Peyton. i would Okay. Now, I'm currently in the midst of writing a book about our home run on wheels baseball trek to all 30 stadiums. Uh, you got any advice on getting published? <laughs> I mean, it's hard. It's hard. It's especially hard because it's easier with mainstream public. Um, academic presses are often a good way to go. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks, Jeff, again. This was fun, and uh, remember to pick up a copy of Football for a Buck. You can find it pretty much everywhere books are sold, and who knows, you might even find an an autographed copy Jeff leaves for someone at an airport, a coffee shop, restaurant, or wherever you decide to leave a copy, right? Yeah. You've been listening to the Home Run on Wheels podcast. Talk with you next week. Thanks. What I want